Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And good day, everybody. We're really glad to have you on board for another episode of Midrats. And as we always like to do, we know a lot of y'all are with us live. And if you are, um, my usual altar call, uh, go ahead and scroll down to the bottom of the page. That's where you will find the chat room. We'll be monitoring that during the course of the show. If you have some observations you wanted to share or if there's a direction you'd like for us to head with our guests or if you even had a question you wanted us to integrate into the conversation, it's the perfect place to put it. Uh, we'll do our best to grab that and bring it in during the course of the next hour. And if you got to rent off and take care of some of the stuff on the honeydew list and you don't catch the full show, if you don't already, remember that you can just go over to iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, uh, find MidRats and subscribe to it. And that way it'll be waiting for you at a time that's best for your convenience and you can catch up on all that you miss. And once that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into today's show. And we're returning to a, another topic, and we've got a returning guest today, but it's, it's an important time for an update, especially when you consider how much intellectual effort the last year has been made focused on Eastern Europe, because a lot of our listenership knows the U.S. Navy, maybe knows a few allied navies, but we, we really try to, to come back to a topic that everybody should be focused on, and that is the Navy that's rising to challenge are the global order and, of course, the U.S. Navy's role in it for the last few decades. And from a Navy of peasants to professionals that today are on par with any Western Navy, they've gone from coastal patrol to global, global reach. There's been a slow and steady growth of the People's Liberation Army Navy, or the Chinese Navy, if you want to just shorten it, that's crept up on some policymakers in the last decade. Now they're starting to catch up with it. And when you look at the numbers, Maybe not capabilities in many areas, but numbers do matter. We're reaching the point that a lot of people just need to accept the fact that the Chinese Navy is going to eclipse the United States Navy, especially regionally in the Western Pacific, for what most people in living memory that have an American passport have always kind of considered in one way or another an American lake. And we have a returning guest today that's given us an up, going to give us an update, not just on where the, the Chinese Navy is today, but also important to look back to see how they see themselves and their history and how they have managed to do this really uh, from an objective point of view. You've, you've got to hand it to them. They have had a slow, steady progress and growth for decades. It has shown a lot of discipline and a little bit of inventiveness along the way. And returning to Midrats today, and we're going to touch on a few things in his newest book titled Mao's Army Goes to Sea, the Island Campaigns and the Founding of the Chinese Navy, is Dr. Toshi Yoshihara. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, known to most people as CSBA. 
Toshi, once again, it's glad to have you back on Midrats. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me back on your show. It's a pleasure. And just to kick it off, and uh, we'll go ahead and I know it's linked on the show page, and for those who are with us live, we'll put some links into the chat room. In your latest book, I, I thought what what really got my attention is like this is valuable because stories matter, heritage matters, uh, expectations matter, and most people are familiar with the United States Navy's origin story. It involves um, what we did during the Revolutionary War with John Paul Jones. Uh, we we wrote songs about what we did at the end of that century against the. Uh, the pirates in the Mediterranean based out of Tripoli. And then we had a lot of actions in the Atlantic and in the Great Lakes in the War of 1812. That's our origin story, and it's in the midst of time. But the the Chinese Navy also has an origin story that still impacts them probably more than the American origin story does, because their origin story is still within living memory. I wonder if you could, could outline that for the, for the listeners, what the People's Liberation Army, Navy, their name kind of gives it away, what their origin story is. Yeah, so <clears throat> one of the main purposes of the book is to tell this origin story, but importantly to let the readers understand uh, that the Chinese Navy uh, and the PLA itself, the People's Liberation Army, they believe that they have a proud history from which to draw from. Uh, and so, and they frequently refer back to this origin story as a way to um, inspire the officers uh, and the troops <clears throat> as a way to enhance the esprit de corps of the PLA and the Chinese Navy. Uh, this origin story is uh, relatively unknown in the West. Uh, most Western writings on the Chinese Navy typically focus on the present uh, and give a, a quick nod to the past, but, but frequently focuses on things that the Chinese Navy has been doing in the recent past. Uh, and so I wanted to shed light <clears throat> on this period because it's an important episode in China's naval history, but as you indicated, it's very much part of their institutional identity but also in terms of their uh, mythology. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, the, the, the book actually talks about the origins of Chinese sea power uh, in, in two ways. The first origin story is really the founding of the Chinese Navy as an institution. Uh, the founding of the Navy actually is, 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 was, is dated April of 1949. So that's uh, six months. Uh, half a year before the formal establishment of the People's Republic. Now, what's important about the founding of the Navy during this time period was that it was formed uh, in the midst of the Chinese Civil War, which was, of course, just winding down. But, but they formed the Navy in the middle of the Chinese Civil War, and given the fact that the Chinese Civil War is so important to the PLA's historiography, mythology, its own institutional identity, um, it's it's just a very important time to understand um, in terms of the Chinese Navy's own institutional identity. Um, because again, the PLA uh, retells and retails uh, much of its past based on its view of the Chinese uh, Civil War. So understanding that founding period, I think, uh, in my view, provides a lot of unique insights 
uh, unique institutional insights into the Chinese Navy. The second story that I tell in the book uh, is really the uh, first um, amphibious operations that the PLA undertook to seize uh, a variety of offshore islands of varying sizes along the coast of along the coast of China, um, and uh, the various operations uh, were different both in terms of scale, uh, both in terms of their operational and strategic importance. So you could have an offshore campaign that was basically a seizure of an isle of a small islet, maybe a couple of nautical miles offshore to, of course, one of the greatest amphibious successes in the PLA's history, which is the seizure of Hainan Island. And Hainan Island, of course, is, you know, is a, is, is a geographic territory that's comparable in size to Taiwan, or to put it in U.S. term, comparable in size to Maryland, which is, of course, pretty significant. Uh, and so the, 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 the larger story that I wanted to tell, again, is that the PLA has a really great story to tell, that it tells itself, uh, and that we have to better understand the story in order to understand the PLA itself. Yeah, I, I think uh, somewhere you, you, you described it as a, or somebody described it as a Navy created in, in gun smoke. And uh, a lot of what they did in the early days was very pragmatic. Can you kind of talk about how they uh, went about what they were doing to, to start a Navy? Because they, they really had nothing when they, when they kicked things off. Yes. Uh, and, you know, one of the points that I make is that the story, this origin story also, I think, overturns uh, a lot of the conventional wisdom in the West uh, about the fact that, you know, this idea that the Chinese Navy was um, largely, um, uh, you know, focused on uh, ideology versus technical expertise, uh, that the, um, the various army officers who were chosen to lead uh, this organization were chosen for their loyalty to the party uh, rather than to the actual building of the Navy, which, of course, required a lot of technical expertise, knowledge, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> and what the story tells us, actually, is that the Chinese naval leadership were, in fact, quite concerned with the technical material aspects of building up this Navy uh, and uh, some of their pragmatism, and I think one of the most important elements of their pragmatism in building up this Navy uh, was to uh, conscript uh, former nationalist officers and sailors uh, to join this new Navy. Now, you have to understand that, you know, they were bringing these folks in from the cold um, just as the Civil War was winding down. So they were prepared to incorporate their sworn enemies, the arch enemies, right, that they've been fighting for decades to determine the fate of of China, and yet they understood, the Chinese naval leadership understood, that if they were to have to stand up this institution, that they would need the expertise that largely resided with the nationalists. And so what they did was they uh, engaged in uh, major recruitment drives, they engaged in amnesty, uh, they tapped their networks, uh, their uh, communist underground secret networks to uh, bring some of these nationalists uh, in from the cold in order to, you know, um, draw on their knowledge, to draw on their expertise uh, for a project that's going to be intensely technical 
and technological in nature. And so in many ways, from the founder of the East China Navy, uh, Zhang Haiping, to the first commander of the People's Liberation Army, the plan, uh, Xiao Jingguang, both of them um, understood that they needed the knowledge base of the nationalists, and they both um, incorporated them into fairly high levels of decision-making, putting them into important advisory roles to offer second opinions on both strategy, but also operations and acquisition and so forth. And so that to me really uh, signified a significant degree of pragmatism, you know, a willingness to overlook ideological differences uh, in order to gain that uh, technical capability. Um, <clears throat> and I think uh, while the conventional wisdom also argued uh, that um, that the communists really were sort of unthinking automatons who sort of borrowed unthinkingly from from the Soviets. And again, I think the 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 uh, readings that I came across suggest that the communists had their own sense of agency, that they were you know uh, determined to have their own imprint on the Chinese Navy, that they were not going to indiscriminately borrow ideas and concepts from the Soviets that they were going to be selective about what kinds of ideas were suitable for their circumstances, combined with their pragmatism to bring in a nationalist influence, I think what you saw, particularly in the first 18 months of the Chinese Navy's founding, was a willingness to incorporate different sources of ideas to advance their project. I think their their origin in, in the modern era is, um, in many ways, unique. Um, you know, the American Navy didn't come out of the mist. It was just a, a, in many ways, we just picked up the Royal Navy traditions and slapped a different flag on it. Um, the the Soviet Navy uh, inherited a, a fairly long uh, tradition and a lot of equipment from the Imperial Russian Navy. Uh, there's a lot, a fair bit of continuity there. But there is something kind of unique in the, the Chinese Navy development after the, the Second World War, as, as those people in the West try to understand the, the, the Chinese Navy's role and position and the, the Chinese defense structure, is, is that difference something that, that we need to keep in mind that inflects their view of what sea power is it might be slightly different or uh, slightly off phase from what people in the West assume is the use and utility of sea power. Yeah, so one of the things that I try to do at the outset of the book is to define what I was looking at. And I, and I didn't define it exclusively in na naval terms. You know, I wasn't looking at the origins of Chinese naval power. I made a point of starting the book by talking about uh, an assessment of the origins of Chinese sea power. And I define sea power quite broadly in the sense, which is really the use of any implement of national power that could be used to influence events at sea uh, uh, in the service of a nation's uh, strategic or national objectives. Uh, and that meant that it's not just the gray holes, it's not just about warships, it's also about uh, the use of land forces, the Army, the Marine Corps, uh, the use of the Air Force, and in the case of the PLA, the use of the rocket force, uh, to be able to use those um, 
uh, those military instruments to influence events at sea, but it also includes the civilian sector, whether it's the role of civilian shipping, merchant ships, uh, the sailors, the boatmen, and so forth, the civil industrial complex um, in, in China related to maritime affairs, all of those would be uh, incorporated into uh, sea power. And so it's a much broader conception of sea power. And it seems to me that if you look at uh, the 1949-1950 period that I cover in the book, is that uh, Chinese naval leaders, but also uh, Chinese civilian leaders, approached it from the perspective of, of sea power, partly because it was largely out of necessity, because they didn't have um, enough uh, naval power, exclusive naval power, to achieve their aims. And so I highlight, for example, uh, the extensive use of um, civilian trawlers, civilian fishing boats, uh, the use of local boatmen, the recruitment and sometimes forced conscription of boatmen uh, to transport troops to cross seas to seize islands, um, the use of uh, civilian vessels that they would then retrofit with uh, army equipment to militarize them for uh, military purposes, uh, and so on and so forth. So I highlight a lot of examples where um, the Chinese leadership clearly was prepared to mobilize all elements of national power to, a, to achieve their aims in the maritime domain. And it seems to me that that provides a lot of context to the challenge that we're facing today. It should not be surprising, for example, that China today is very adept at using uh, paramilitary forces, their ability to use the Coast Guard, their willingness to use maritime militia um, to, to um, engage in harassment uh, against rival claimants in the South China Sea or in the East China Sea. I mean, all of those things should not be surprising to us if we had the understanding of this early period. Uh, they, they were basically replicating uh, those efforts uh, from, from the past. And that actually goes back even further to uh, the revolutionary period where Mao's forces were waging what they called people's war, right, which was this ability to mobilize all elements of society uh, to achieve the war aims. And we saw that play out in the maritime domain then, in 1949 and 1950, to great effect, and we're seeing them do it today. So there's actually quite a bit of continuity, um, and that that should help us really better understand uh, how they think about, how they uh, employ uh, sea power. And of course, there's a contrast here in terms of certainly from the U.S. perspective, that we've certainly struggled to deal with the non-military aspects of Chinese sea power. Um, and, and so, in my view, for us to get that historical context um, should sort of, again, you know, anchor our understanding of Chinese sea power um, in a way that helps us appraise uh, their um, effectiveness in using those non-military in, uh, non instruments in the maritime domain. One of the things that yeah, one of the things that struck me was, uh, I guess even though uh, I, I knew about it, but I wasn't really aware of, the, of how hard this the Chinese Civil War uh, with the the communist forces against the nationalist forces uh, was for that country. I mean, the, the, a lot of what is in the book has to do with the fact that they were still trying to the Chinese the communists were still trying to to get complete control of a rather large country and its offshore. Uh, 
islands to that that you know that the nationalists held to uh, which were threat to the ports and the and the sea lanes of communication for the for the communist uh, government Could, and. And I, I, the other thing I was surprised at, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit, is, is Mao is the one who really uh, focused the attention on, on the need to develop a navy and, a, and an air force uh, for obvious reasons. They didn't have anything like that, uh, either of those, in 1949. That's right. So what I try to show is that the China's turn to the seas is very much tied into the end game of the Chinese Civil War. Uh, and I begin the story really... Uh, when the communists are basically lined up along the Yangtze River, uh, the the kind of the watery barrier that divided North and South China, and that that was basically the final barrier that would allow communist forces to fan out from the south bank of the Yangtze River to now uh, charge forward to seize the rest of South China. And so as the communist forces w were poised to cross the Yangtze River, um, the communist leadership understood that once they, you know, seized uh, Nanjing and then uh, further upriver to seize Shanghai, once they crossed uh, the Yangtze River, uh, they would be running into what would be essentially an inherently maritime theater. Uh, in the meantime, the nationalists, of course, having been defeated decisively in northeastern and north China, were falling back onto these offshore islands, but also were falling back to the island garrison of Taiwan. So Mao understood in early 1949 that once he began to charge southwards to take the rest of uh, the heartland of China or South China, uh, that uh, he would need to transition the PLA uh, to deal with maritime naval affairs. And so one of the central questions of my book is how does a you know agrarian-based, land-based revolutionary army uh, go to sea? You know, and this was in many ways a kind of an extraordinary story, right, because you have um, officers and troops who've been fighting either uh, a guerrilla campaign or major conventional combat on land, frequently in landlocked areas. Many of the troops uh, had, had never seen the ocean, and you're basically asking a, this army organization to transform elements of its forces to deal with a brand new domain uh, and to set up a new service to be able to operate effectively in that brand new domain, and I, I and, and 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 so that there's a really sort of unique aspect to that story that I wanted to bring to light in the book. Talking about Mao and you know, naval theory and naval concepts, you know, most people will you know reach for the, the the short list. They'll throw out their Mahans, their Corbett and stuff. But you point out here, and you, you've written about it previously, that Mao, as a maritime operational theorist and strategist, actually has uh, some ideas that contribute that you can trace back to that um, that peasant army background. Why don't you talk a little bit, because I, I, I've been looking around and really haven't found a comparable version that's not related to Mao, but Mao had a concept that still um, affects today's Chinese Navy, and that's the concept of uh, sabotage warfare at sea. What is that, and how does that manifest even today and how the Chinese look at their use of sea power? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things I try to highlight uh, is that, again, contrary to this idea that the communists basically borrowed everything from the Soviets, 
they really did try to have their own imprint, particularly in terms of operational concepts, uh, tactics, and doctrine. And so what they tried to do was to uh, bring, bring to the fore uh, their own experiences uh, on land and try to apply them in the maritime domain. And sabotage warfare at sea is a perfect example of this, which was um, sabotage warfare basically called for uh, the use of small units to engage in small unit action. Uh, these small units were designed to uh, go after um, relatively isolated, weakened units at sea, and that these small units would use things like deception, surprise, close in combat, night combat, uh, in order to uh, knock these um, enemy units off balance. And, and if the opportunity were to arise, they would then engage in these battles of uh, annihilation. Um, and, um, of course, uh, some, you know, many of those ideas, of course, trace their origin to Mao Zedong's concept of guerrilla warfare, uh, where he uh, talked about this idea of active defense, right, which was the use of... Um, offensive operations and tactics in the service of strategically defensive goals, in this case, the survival of the Chinese Communist Party. And he frequently talked about uh, using guerrilla forces uh, to engage in small unit actions that, were that would rely on surprise and deception, nighttime operations and so forth, to go after isolated enemy units to, and to the extent possible, annihilate them. You can see a direct parallel um, between what happened on land and what happened at sea. And I think what's really important to note is that this concept was uh, formally uh, incorporated into Chinese naval doctrine in the mid-1950s. But if you read carefully uh, the uh, current definition or more recent definition of uh, uh, basically a near-sea defense or offshore defense, which is the maritime version of active defense, is that sabotage warfare at sea is actually uh, subsumed under that broader definition. So it, so it you know, in some ways remains with the Chinese Navy to this very day. And in some ways, um, it's not surprising in terms of uh, the match between their doctrine and their force structure. So they still have the uh, Type 022 uh, catamaran uh, fast attack craft. Uh, that, that platform you could argue, is a successor to the torpedo boats, the gunboats uh, that the Chinese Navy either imported from the Soviets or began to develop themselves uh, in the 1950s and 60s to fulfill precisely that role of coastal defense. And so, again, a lot of uh, uh, what we see today are, in many ways, um, uh, a continuation of, of some of the actions that they took, you know, in the 1950s in, 60, uh, in, in the 1950s and 60s. Well, one of the fascinating parts of the book, aspects of the book, is that the Chinese uh, uh, engaged in an island hopping comp campaign, and, and just what you said, they, they, they wouldn't always go for the strongest uh, point that the nationalists held. They would, they would work their way around to that. Can you kind of discuss how they, how they uh, went through this this, this uh, when they were successful, when they, when they took this, this kind of approach of knocking off the easy pieces before they had to bite the hard one? Yeah, so they, they came up with essentially what I would consider a kind of a sequential strategy where they would uh, focus um, at a weak point, 
a relatively weakly defended position, but they also wanted to make sure that that particular position was closer to the mainland so that it was a relatively low-hanging fruit. Uh, and uh, they also wanted to make sure that when they attacked those uh, targets, uh, that they could actually have uh, tactical superiority. And so one of the uh, themes, I think, uh, that, that sort of repeats itself in some of these campaigns is this idea of tactical superiority within the context of strategic inferiority. In other words, the communists were obviously technologically, materially weaker than the nationalists. Uh, they did not have the means to contest uh, nationalist use of the air and the seas. Uh, and so how do you, under those circumstances, achieve your operational objectives? Well, what they try to do, again, as I said, is to um, focus their mass, focus tactical superiority over isolated or weakly defended um, features uh, amidst strategic inferiority to achieve that aim. And then by doing so, they have these other um, sort of uh, subsidiary benefits, which is, first of all, uh, if you're successful, it significantly buoys morale. Secondly, uh, it also enables the PLA to uh, gain hard-earned hard combat experience that they can then apply to their next target. And so they're then able to, you know, uh, bite away at nationalist positions very gradually by going after weakly defended positions and then going just slightly further out and take the next position and so on. Um, and what I think is potentially interesting about, uh, about this is whether you can think of this as a potential model, if you will, for a, uh, a future Taiwan contingency. Uh, and there are other models to uh, think about as well. So. Um, in the Hainan campaign, um, which, you know, again, is, is, was a major amphibious uh, operation that was successful for the communists, uh, they actually did something really interesting, which was to uh, smuggle troops onto the island behind the frontline defenders because they understood that the northern shore of Hainan was very heavily and well defended by nationalist forces. So they conducted clandestine transits and put forces ashore by sailing those boats further down the east and west coasts of Hainan, inserted them onto the island, and then had these advanced troops link up with a local insurgent force called the Chongya Column. These troops, these, these, uh, these are local troops who've been fighting an insurgency on Hainan for decades, knew the terrain very well, had a pretty well-stocked, well-resourced uh, safe haven or base area, so they would link up with these uh, columns, and these columns would then bring them into the safe area. And their goal was to conduct um, harassment attacks uh, behind enemy lines to tie down nationalist defenders, and that that would then uh, provide the opportunity uh, for the frontal assault, the cross-sea assault, to be um, successful. Um, that's also kind of another way of dealing with uh, Tact, uh, uh, dealing with strategic inferiority, right? How do you change the larger balance of power? Well, you, you engage in these types of tactics to shift the tactical balance of power in ways that, uh, that, that increases the chances of, of success. And again, the, you might say the Hainan example might also be a potential archetype, right, for a future Taiwan contingency. Uh, you know, if you think about one of the concerns that we've had about Taiwan for a very long time is 
um, the role of fifth column forces on Taiwan, right? And that that certainly um, rhymes with or parallels uh, the presence of the Chongyang column on Hainan and the kinds of disruptive activities that they were able to conduct to tie down the uh, nationalists. So it seems to me that um, at a minimum, if we believe that the PLA studies its own history to draw lessons, then we might be able to infer or speculate whether some of these successful campaigns or even failed campaigns uh, might uh, serve as archetypes or models or frameworks that they use to think about a current and future contingency. Another example I really liked uh, from your writing, because it, it's something that I, I had no knowledge of, is we all like to, um, especially in the last decade, there's been, I don't know, how many barrels of ink spilled about, you know, are we a learning institution? We'll pick at our belly button a little bit and think, thinking of we're a learning institution. But that is something, uh, taking a, a, a clear, direct look at failures and learning from them that's important for any military organization if they're going to succeed down the road. And you need that, that tradition and that type of culture that you wouldn't expect uh, in a, from uh, a communist organization. Now, there's, there's a flavor here because it's a learning organization driven from the top down. And the um, Jinmen Island campaign and that failure and, and how, how Mao reacted to that failure, I thought was, was pretty impressive. Talk a little bit about that and how much of that tradition you think of, of having a clear-eyed view of failure and learning and adjustment you think has transferred from 1949 to 2023? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great, uh, great uh, question. So I think the Jimin campaign was, was probably the most eye-opening for me because it was such a catastrophic failure on the part of the communists. So, so if you'll allow me, let me just say, get, you know, give you a bit of a background to what happened and then talk about the lessons. Uh, the Jimin campaign took place in October of 1949. It was a very important campaign for not only for the high command, but also for the top civilian leadership, uh, including Mao, because the seizure of Xiamen, which is just west of uh, Jingmen, and the seizure of Jingmen itself was seen uh, as basically a critical launch pad from which the communists would launch an offensive across the Taiwan Strait to take Taiwan. So success at Jingmen would then open the door for a potential operation against Taiwan. So this was absolutely critical. Unfortunately, uh, the organization that led the campaign, the Third Field Army, uh, was in kind of a hurry. Uh, they were in a hurry. Uh, they were under a lot of pressure to succeed, but they were also in a hurry um, because they, in some ways, e even the PLA historiography admits that perhaps the Third Field Army suffered from victory disease. Um, but there were a couple of things that really led to the disaster at Jingmen. Uh, the first was just simply bad intelligence. Uh, there was a complete underestimation of the size of the garrison on Jingmen uh, in terms of the number of defenders who were actually on the island. When Chiang Kai-shek decided to double down and to really defend Jingmen, he was able to reinforce that garrison and ballooned really the defensive force on the island. So there was real bad intelligence about just how strong the enemy was. There was also a bad command and control. Uh, they basically had a one core organization lead the effort, 
and this one core also oversaw units of another core, which of course it had very little understanding of, very little interaction with. You, you can automatically see that that was going to cause all sorts of command and control problems. Another problem was the lack of shipping. Um, because of the earlier campaign to see Xiamen to the west, um, the amphibious forces actually lost a lot of these uh, fishing trawlers and junks uh, that were conscripted to, uh, to cross the waters. And what was interesting was because these were conscripted civilians, uh, many of them saw the horrors of this amphibious operation. And when they were told that, you know, they're going to need to use their boats to go to Jingmen next, a lot of them fled. And so you had basically a severe shortage of shipping, a lot of people who didn't want to do it anyway. And that, that then required the Third Field Army to now conscript boatmen from areas outside of uh, that, that, that um, outside of the Jingmen area. What that meant was that they were now recruiting boatmen who had very little knowledge of the local conditions around Jingmen. Uh, um, another problem was um, <clears throat> the bad plan. Because of the shortage of shipping, they decided that they were going to basically uh, uh, use whatever they had to put ashore the first wave. Those boats then would in turn go back to bring over the second wave which meant, of course, you already had a force that was probably, a total force that was probably uh, numerically unable to uh, defeat the nationalists on Jingmen. You were now dividing that force by half. Uh, and when the campaign started, uh, they, they got the boats across, but because of um, the, you know, problems with wind, problems with the current, the fleet was scattered all across the beaches on Jingmen. And when the troops landed, they basically charged headlong into the island uh, without waiting for reinforcements. And so these were widely scattered, uncoordinated offensive effort into the island. Uh, and, that, and they were met by a combined arms force. Uh, the Nationalists had actually landed uh, Sherman tanks uh, on the island. Uh, and they were able to use combined arms tactics to basically systematically wipe out the communists who were uh, on those lodgements. And uh, over the course of oh, and I should add, there's a there's a horrific story where uh, the ships uh, were supposed to return to go back to the mainland to pick up the second wave, but what happened was the tides receded, uh, and all of those boats were trapped on the mudflats. Uh, and when daylight broke, because they conducted this uh, night voyage, when daylight broke, the nationalists, of course, now could use the air and could use the seas to systematically destroy virtually all of the boats stranded on the mudflats. And I talk about in the book about how the, how the second wave troops who were standing on the other shore could see this disaster unfolding. And they were watching basically helplessly as these boats were turned into fiery wreckages. Um, <clears throat> and so then the troops who were stuck on the island, who had no way to go back, who had no way to escape, were systematically annihilated. And in the course of three to four days, some 9,000 troops or three regiments worth of troops were wiped out either killed or captured. It was an absolute disaster. Um, I think uh, many people thought that that was probably the biggest disaster that Mao's forces suffered in the last 18 months of the Chinese Civil War. So it put a complete stop to uh, Mao's efforts to um, try to take Taiwan. They had to reevaluate all of their assumptions about you know, what it would take to conduct a serious amphibious operation. And, of course, the failure in that campaign uh, is a legacy that we still live with, right? Jingmen is still part of the Republic of China. 
it was the you know it was the epicenter of uh, two crises during the Cold War: the '54 Taiwan Strait Crisis and the 1958 Taiwan Crisis. So it it, it that failure there is in many ways um, the symbol of the continued division between China and Taiwan. Now, to get to your lessons, what was really interesting was Mao realized that they had to take this amphibious operation thing, right, this thing that they've just been experimenting with and have been improvising. They had to take this thing very seriously. And that really informed what the 4th Field Army later did with Hainan. Uh, I document, for example, how Mao Zedong was very personally involved, sending multiple telegrams to the high command, to the fourth field army, saying, you need to have enough shipping, you need to have enough troops, you need to make sure that you can take the island in one go. The, the, the first wave has to be large enough to be able to sustain itself and operate independently without any hopes of further reinforcement. You really need to make sure that that first wave is has mass and is highly effective. And you can tell from the way the 4th Field Army prepared for that campaign. They did everything essentially the opposite of the 3rd Field Army. They engaged in extensive intelligence to figure out the enemy's disposition. Um, they engaged in uh, intensive preparations for the sea crossings. They did uh, a lot of diligent work to uh, gather enough shipping they also deployed, um, importantly, um, anti-air aircraft guns uh, onto the coast of the peninsula that they were assembling forces in order to deny nationalist use of the air forces to harass those forces who were assembling on the peninsula. So they did basically all of the things that the Third Field Army did not do. And, oh, and one other thing that they did was to mobilize the entire local society and communities there so that they would provide the industry, the production, uh, the munitions, the food, the supplies, and so forth, the entire logistical infrastructure to support this very large-scale amphibious operation. So the combination of all of these things contributed then to the success of Hainan. And to the extent that the 4th Field Army learned lessons from the 3rd Field Army, um, the 3rd Field Army's failures then did, in fact, contribute to the kinds of adjustments that the Fourth Field Army were able to make to make that campaign a success. And I document that to this very day, Chinese strategists and military analysts continue to debate uh, and relitigate the causes of the Jingmen campaign because they certainly see um, the relevance of that campaign for a potential invasion scenario against Taiwan. And so some of the lessons that they seem to have learned is, of course, having enough shipping. Uh, another lesson that they learned is, you know, never underestimate the enemy, even if China seems to be very, you know, seems to be very strong today relative to Taiwan. Don't, don't ever underestimate the enemy. Uh, you need to have mass. Uh, you need to have uh, significant preparations. And um, you need to have significant firepower. Uh, to be able to uh, conduct this kind of an operation. So I think Jingmen uh, casts, in, in some ways, a surprisingly long shadow over uh, Chinese thinking about future amphibious operations. Well, I, I know that you had a, uh, another piece uh, for CSBA about, about uh, Chinese lessons from the Pacific War, where they've studied... Um, our efforts in the in the in the World War II, including the, uh, I mean, there was the Battle of Midway. There was, I think, he was Guadalcanal, and 
uh, well, Okinawa has the has the three examples that you looked at. Uh, from and, and I noticed in in that that they keep talking about. I mean, the, some of the lessons I think they got from from uh, I used to call it Quimoy Quimoy, uh, but mm-hmm. is Jin Jin. Jinmen, um, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when we that was in the news, the Kwimoy and Matsu uh, mm-hmm. crisis. Uh, so anyway, uh, but you know they've taken those lessons and they, a lot of them are about logistics, about making sure you have a sustainment capability. Uh, can you kind of talk mm-hmm. about the, the the lessons they've learned from not only from their past but but from our uh, fight in World War II? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for flagging my uh, other uh, piece that came out uh, a few weeks ago on Chinese lessons from the Pacific War. And I think the, if I could just talk a bit about the premise of the report and then to get to your question about logistics is that, um, first of all, um, just to reinforce the earlier point that the PLA is a learning organization. Uh, it is a learning organization in part because it has to, right, that it hasn't really fought a major conventional war since uh, 1979, um, and, and that it is drawing from a variety of sources, both uh, its own past, uh, past conflicts uh, of foreign militaries to inform their thinking about, about future warfare. Uh, the premise of the report is, is that the PLA has been learning quite a bit over the past 20, 30 years of, of wars involving uh, very weak and very strong powers, right? Meaning the United States beating up on second and third rate militaries since the first Gulf War. That made sense to a certain extent when the PLA, of course, in the 1990s and 2000s, uh, was, assumed that it was going to fight from a position of relative weakness. But, of course, as China seeks to become a quote-unquote world-class military, uh, that uh, it is developing, especially for its Navy, power projection capabilities, sea control forces, that uh, will uh, certainly close the gap with the U.S. Navy and certainly in certain areas have already um, achieved superiority, uh, is that those wars involving weak and strong powers are, are losing their analytic salience and that increasingly what the PLA needs to learn from the past are wars between peer militaries, between peer great powers, between, in, in particular, peer navies. And that was, the, that was my hunch as I went into this project, looking at uh, the Chinese literature on, uh, on the Pacific War. And what I found was that they indeed have been studying the Second World War and the, and the Pacific War in particular uh, since the post-Mao period. They've been very productive. Uh, in 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 the study of this period, and to go to your question about logistics, that was definitely one of the the themes, the key themes that jumped out at me. They were simply floored by uh, the ability of the United States to sustain its expeditionary operations from across the Pacific, uh, and they detail um, basically American logistical prowess both during the Guadalcanal campaign, but in particular the Okinawa campaign, the ability of the United States to have uh, forward bases, to have forward anchorages, uh, to have uh, transshipment hubs, to have a massive amphibious fleet, to have a massive at-sea replenishment fleet, uh, to have the amount of resources to sustain and resupply these combat units at such great distances. I mean, uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you read the Chinese literature, they're, they're just completely... Um, in awe of the United States. Uh, you know, there's no question that it, it was one area where they deeply admired 
the U.S. military's ability to do so. And I think the other thing that jumped out at me in reading that literature is that it's clear to me in terms of learning lessons is that China does not want to be the next Imperial Japanese Navy. It does not want to find itself in a position where it does not have uh, the logistical capabilities to support uh, expeditionary distant operations and that what they want is to become more like the United States, more like the U.S. Navy in the Pacific War. Uh, and, and so that reinforces one of my judgments about the PLA is that the PLA will not be satisfied being number four, number three, number two in the pecking order of military powers, right? It, it wants to be uh, on par with the United States, at least on par with the United States. And the writings on logistics uh, and their hopes and dreams about the PLA having those kinds of capabilities, I think really reinforces my view that that's what they want. And, they, uh, you know, and it reinforces another um, aspect of PLA learning is that the PLA is laser-focused on us, right? Uh, we are the benchmark. We are the gold standard by which the PLA measures its success and it measures its progress. It's not interested in simply comparing itself to Russia or Japan or other European militaries. It's, it wants to emulate us. The, the, the best things that we offer, they want to be able to do as well. And again, in my view, their writings of the Pacific War, particularly their, um, their admiration for the U.S. military on the logistical side of things, suggest that that's, in fact, uh, what they want to do. They really do want to be a genuine world-class military. And I think specifically for the Pacific Island campaign, you can see where they have followed through on their study and their application and argument about theory into practical action. Um, we've discussed, especially over the last year on a few occasions, I know Cleo Pascal uh, been way ahead of the game in trying to get people to look at Chinese actions in, you know, your average Marine Corps historian knows all these islands, Guadalcanal, Tinian. You, know, you look at the Marshall and the Gilbert Islands, the, the Chinese uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and their economics uh, directorates have been very active in the last decade, creating relationships in all those islands that uh, America fought for to gain control of, and we assumed that we had. Uh, that There was something in the news last week where I think Fiji is trying to back out of one of their arrangements with the Chinese. And I think there's a, a quote from that CBSA article that I, I like really well. It says, uh, quote, one way to discern how China might fight in the next war is to assess how the Chinese strategists look at the last, unquote. And you can see where they are doing that simply by these strange little islands they seem to have a lot of interest in. They, they've studied our logistics nodes that we developed for War Plan Orange back at the end of the 1930s pretty well, it looks like. Yeah, you know, I, you know and I think their, their view of the value of the Pacific Islands uh, is informed by their close study of history, but it's also uh, informed by their geostrategic reading of our forward presence. So, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, 
I'm sure your audience has, you know, has, you know, has heard about this idea of the first island chain, of course, the second island chain uh, that runs from the Japanese islands down through the Marianas and wends its way back into Southeast Asia. And then there's the third island chain. And depending on who you talk to, the third island chain may simply be the Hawaii Islands centered on Pearl Harbor, or it could be basically an island chain that runs from Alaska down through the Aleutians, down through the Central Pacific, and all terminating in New Zealand. So whatever the configuration is, the, this whole idea of first, second, and third island chains is really w what it encapsulates. It's the architecture of American military power across the Pacific, right? That they, they see the island chains as, uh, as um, platforms through which the United States can project power from the American homeland through the third island chain, through the second island chain, to get to the first island chain to contain or to fight China. And so if you, if you try to sort of, you know, understand how China views maritime Asia, then it's not surprising that what they want to do then is in some ways um, go through the soft underbelly, if you will, of the first, second, and third island chain, right, to drive a salient into the U.S. forward position by having uh, political, diplomatic, economic, and potentially in the future military presence and influence in the South Pacific that would give them uh, a foothold uh, that, would ha that would give them leverage not only in peacetime because obviously they would be able to you know, engage in all sorts of uh, intelligence activities to know uh, where we are, how we're moving forces, and so forth, uh, but also potentially to uh, have wartime utility, right, which was part of um, the reason why we had um, the, the great battle at Guadalcanal, the fear that if the Japanese were to occupy Guadalcanal, that they would then be in a military position to interdict U.S. sea lines of communications connecting the United States and to Australia. So I think in some ways um, history is, is certainly rhyming uh, um, in this case, um, and, and, and it comes from both their, geostrate their geostrategic reading and understanding of the environment, but, uh, you know, but as I show in the report, it's also, I think, informed by their deep study of the Pacific War. Yeah, the other thing, <laughs> you know, if they're learning a lot of lessons from history and, and they have a, a – a history too of, of surprise attack of um, I don't want to say underhanded, but just just kind of not. Uh, well, yeah, I mean they, you know, th th that is. The, I think it's it's in your article somewhere that they have. They, are we looking at the potential for them to uh, engage in some kind of preemptive, what active defense as they call it, preemptive strike as, as a threat to us? Yeah. So, you know, that's another great question. I actually came out with another book chapter um, uh, last fall. Um, it was a chapter as a part of a historical a compendium on the road to Pearl Harbor. And my chapter, which kind of anchored the uh, end of the book, was meant to sort of uh, talk about uh, and think about PLA doctrine uh, to discern whether there are these, you know, uh, tendencies for preemption and for first strike. And in that chapter, I actually identify PLA doctrinal writings that talk about, you know, six or seven different types of surprise attacks. Uh, and, and, you know, and that itself gives you a sense for how the organization, the institution, values uh, surprise, certainly at the tactical level, uh, especially 
under conditions in which they were fighting from a position of relative weakness. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's, it's worth thinking about uh, the possibility that China might engage in such a surprise attack. I think one of the key differences uh, between, say, Pearl Harbor and what's happening today is that uh, the PLA does not have to sail its fleet across the ocean to conduct that first strike, right? It doesn't have to risk its fleet in order to achieve uh, many of its operational aims because we are, in Mao's terms, already uh, lured in deep because the, our forward presence, particularly the major bases that we have on the first island chain, are already well within range of PLA firepower, right? So we are, in fact, already been lured in by, by, you know, by the very character of our, of our forward presence. Uh, and so uh, we present significant um, targets of opportunity uh, that might tempt PLA decision makers to consider such a first strike. Now, I think there's another historical parallel we're thinking about, too, and it's a dilemma that I think Chinese decision makers confront which is that the operational efficacy of a first strike has to be balanced against the strategic risks. And the historical parallel that I'm talking about here is, of course, uh, during World War I, uh, Imperial Germany's decision to um, punch through the Low Country, operationally potentially efficacious, but strategically counterproductive because you're virtually guaranteeing the involvement of Britain. Uh, in the case of China, uh, any first strike option that they consider, um, while operationally efficacious in the sense that it would you know, potentially take off uh, significant portions of U.S. and allied military power, um, take them off the table, is that it would almost certainly draw in Japan, right? It's the third largest economy with a very modern military. So again, I think Chinese decision makers face this dilemma is that while it might be operationally uh, very uh, attractive and tempting, what is their assessment of how that um, is balanced against the potentially uh, strategic counterproductive consequences of conducting a first strike? And I think it's not going to be, you know, an, an easy call, right? I don't think any decision maker in Beijing will sort of unthinkingly pull the trigger, if you will, uh, on, that, on that option. But I think it ultimately depends on how the Chinese leadership thinks about um, Japan's disposition. So, for example, if she and his subordinates are convinced that Japan is going to be all in with the United States, say, over Taiwan, regardless of what China does, right, uh, that, that, it, that it's, you know, difficult or maybe even impossible to, um, you know, split the alliance to, um, to drive Japan to the sidelines, to keep Japan on the fence. If they believe that they, they don't really have any viable options to do so, then the operational benefits of a, such a first strike then begins to rise in terms of its attractiveness to Chinese leaders. But I think all of those uh, calculations and decision-making processes, of course, are invisible to us, and um, it, it, it ultimately comes down to what does Xi Jinping and his lieutenants think uh, at the time of the crisis. And that's enough to both confuse and frighten probably both of our, uh, both of those <laughs> things for our listeners at the at the end of the hour. I don't, I don't think we could end it better, but we we have used up the full hour, and you know, I'm glad we got a chance not just to touch on 
your your recent book, but also your uh, CSBA study. Uh, and Tosha, I know you're well caffeinated, and you've got a lot of things in the books. Uh, for our listeners who want to keep track of you, where is a, a good place for them to keep an eye on you? And are there some projects you're working on right now that we should see coming up in the next few months we should also keep an ear open for? Uh, so um, uh, you can keep track of most of my um, public reports uh, on the CSBA website. It's at uh, CSBA uh, uh, online.org. Um, and uh, in terms of my more recent research, um, I've been doing quite a bit of uh, work with my uh, colleague, uh, Evan Montgomery at CSBA, uh, looking at uh, Chinese nuclear strategy. We just came out with an article through the Washington Quarterly uh, uh, over, over Christmas. Uh, I would highly recommend that, where we talk about uh, the challenge of uh, China's uh, theater-level nuclear capabilities. Uh, we're also coming out with a report, uh, hopefully soon, uh, about uh, the impact of uh, hypersonic weapons on strategic stability. So please look out for that. Uh, that should be, again, coming out fairly soon. Well, that sounds like great stuff, and, and I really appreciate you again taking time to, to visit with us uh, today and look forward to next time. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Toshi. It's been, it's been quite enlightening and a little bit scary. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. And until next time, we hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers. Farewell, <laughs>